Today is the last message in the series called Don't Give Up, Hope Wins, Love Wins. And uh, there's been a strategic journey through this series because we've got a lot of stuff going on. And it's, uh, as far as the, the social pressure, even in church circles or in, in your neighborhood circles, we have varying opinions of what's going on in our society with COVID and all that stuff. And nobody wants to really talk about it. And, and I don't think it's smart for the church to focus on the politics of it. I think we have enough of a big job to share about the love of God and pointing folks to not be afraid and look at the source of all of our hope. And that's why I'm doing this, because love does win. And what does love look like? And there's a lot of believers who sure need to learn how to love a little bit better in their opinions, and that might mean cease from providing them or find a more loving way to share them. So how do we then go through this? I want to share with you something I found by Henry Nowen. I'm going to try and get my clicker working again. Is it not there? Okay, you are my clicker. There we go. We'll figure this out. So this is one glitch that we will figure out. So this is a, a, a pretty powerful devotional. I hope... I hope you'll like this one. Here's, here's how it goes. So Gary, you can read along with me when, oh, did it catch up all of a sudden? Go backwards. Yeah. No, next one. Back. 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 The other. There we go. Now go to the first one. Yes. You're called to be fruitful, not be a fruitcake. That was my edit. All right. This is really good. You have to really be aware of the difference between fruitfulness and success because the world is always talking to you about your success society keeps asking you show me your trophies show me how many books you've written show me how many games did you win show me how much money did you make show me and this is all about performance driven acceptance there's nothing wrong with any of that per se the real question though is are you going to bear fruit Oh, I thought you were coming along with me. All right. The amazing thing is that our fruitfulness, this, this is really important, our fruitfulness comes out of our vulnerability, not just out of our power. And I think what he's trying to say here is it's not from our self-effort power that we tend to rely on, especially in circles that focus too much on success and, and being a successful person. Um, here we go. Actually, it comes out of our powerlessness. If the ground wants to be fruitful, you have to break it open a little bit. The hard ground cannot bear fruit. It has to be raked or tilled open. The mystery is that our illness and our weakness and our many ways of dying are often the ways that we get in touch with our vulnerabilities. You and I have to trust that they will allow us to make us more fruitful if lived faithfully. Precisely where are the weakest, sorry, precisely where we are weakest and most often broken and most needy, precisely there can be the ground of our fruitfulness. That is the vision that means that death can indeed be the final healing because it also becomes the way to be so vulnerable that we can bear fruit in a whole new way. And I think I sent this to Val last night um, because I, as I was reading it, this really 
you know, her, her dad dying and seeing this, this hit me. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is, this is really good. Like trees that die, oops, sorry, wrong one. Uh, okay, that, that is the vision that means that death can indeed be the final healing because it becomes the way to be so vulnerable that we can bear fruit in a whole new way. Like trees that die and become fuel, and like leaves that die and become fertilizer, in nature, something new comes out from death all the time. You must realize that you are part of that beautiful process, that your death is not the end, but in fact it is the source of your fruitfulness beyond you in the new generations, in new centuries. So last week, we were wrapping things up. We were talking about our focus of uh, uh, looking at what abiding is. And I'm going to read the definition of abiding that I um, uh, read last time. And then we'll dig into uh, where that comes from from the book of John. I think, you'll, I think you'll like I hope you'll like it. It's weird being live with you. Like really strange because now I'm over checking everything. And we'll get all these little uh, nervousness things out of the way quickly. <clears throat> abiding. I love this. Living in the constant awareness that Christ is in you. It is trusting that he is your source, your voice, your thoughts, your passions and desires. He is your rest. And here's why this is important. Because last week we, we kind of touched on the what would Jesus do thing. How many of you read the books, what would Jesus do, or at least heard of it, or seen the bumper stickers, or wore the bracelets and all that stuff? Yes, we've done it. Throw them away. They're useless. They really are because the, the, the whole concept, if you, for those that have, they just see what would Jesus do and then use that as a flat concept, they miss the whole foundation of why that book was written. And this is focusing on learning to listen to the voice of Christ in you, being aware Jesus lives in you, where a bracelet is about you trying to figure out how would Jesus respond in any given moment? And now it's your job to think, 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 okay, would he pick red or blue? Would he put cheese on the burger or not? Does he like onions? Like seriously, you can really go crazy on what would Jesus do? And then here's another problem. If you go by the bracelet, now you have your cultural um, formations that have happened to you by the cultural uh, surroundings with your family upbringing, your church culture, that plays into it. So you probably can't hear Jesus, you hear the culture. So this is the ultimate direction for every one of us to learn to listen to Christ in you. That's why Jesus talked about abiding. And here's where he got it from. I am the vine. I am the vine. The true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. So that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So um, I'm going to stop there for a minute because this, this text has been used as a clobber verse that it's actually up to you to stay abiding in, in Christ. That's up to you to maintain your connection to God. I don't know if you guys grew up with that. I sure did. I used to preach it too. You know, look, 
you know, and then you, then you judge people for their behaviors and say, see, that's not abiding. And you've immediately gone to judging one another, which is not what we've been called to. But I love this because Jesus says he is the vine and every branch in me. So there is no cutting off and goodbye. And, and again, this has been used as a, a threat that you could go to hell. Okay, do you remember that? How many of you remember that? Anybody? Yeah, a few of you. If you didn't hear that before, you're lucky. All right, good for you. <laughs> you're in a good grace place. But this, is, this has been used to throw guilt and shame at people. And this is not what this is for. This is for encouraging your soul to wake up to the reality of who's in you and live life with joy. That's what this is about. Smile more. In fact, those that saw it the other way are probably the grumpiest people I've ever met and I've seen them in church. How many times have you, you know, sat in church as a way, way back, not the young people, but for us older ones, you know, and all these people are singing these hymns, the joy of the Lord is my strength and joy. Like, you're not happy. <laughs> so there's so much fakeness there. And uh, anyway, that's, this abiding thing's big. So I want to take a look at these two words, the aereo and the katharyo. Here's what they mean. So, takes away. So back over here, it says here, he takes away every branch. And another translation will say cuts off and throws out in a negative form. But that's not what it's saying. It means to raise up. So taking a branch, raising it up, raise it from the ground and take up. To take upon oneself, carry that's been raised up. And this is the, these are the definitions of that word. So whoever's writing this, or translating it rather, they're choosing which words to use. So the lens of the interpreter or the translator plays a big role in your Bible. That's why you should never just read one translation. It is unhelpful. There might be some nice nostalgic to it, but it is unhelpful. Uh, you need to have more perspectives. Um, it means to bear away that has been raised or carry off and to move from its place. The other word he prunes is to cleanse uh, of filth and impurity. Like we normally think of pruning as cutting, and there is part of that, uh, but it's, you got to think of what's being cut. To prune trees and vines from useless shoots. So this is, this is a big deal. And something I've learned about vine dressing, and I, I've talked on this many times over the last 30 years. Um, it's funny how my perspective on these verses have changed in 30 years, and it gets better and better, in my opinion. Um, but the idea of lifting up. So uh, I used to live in the Niagara Peninsula, where there's a lot of vineyards and peach, guard, you know, peach yards and apple orchards, you name it. And so um, even around here, we see a couple of places that have vineyards, but it's not very... It doesn't work very well for the environment here, but in the Niagara Peninsula, it's amazing. So there are vines that go down, and, and the person that has to take care of a, a row or a section of the garden, they're not there to attack or cut um, the good stuff, okay? Like this is, this is their bread and butter. This is how they uh, earn income. They need great uh, grapes, and if you don't do the right pruning, you get smaller grapes, but they've learned the craft of creating a really good grape. I don't understand all that stuff. Anybody that does wine tasting, and I think Carol, you're watching. 
Carol um, from University Gates has been part of a wine club for a long time, and she could probably tell you a whole lot about the different types of grapes, and I don't get it. Just make sure it tastes good to me. That's all I care about. But the idea of, the, of the, when they're doing their cutting, sometimes in the bottom, there's not enough airflow. And you'll see that there's usually a lot of room at the bottom of the vines. But my father had uh, grapes all around our pool uh, growing up. It was like a six-foot fence, and it was just filled with grapes. I didn't like those grapes. They're too gushy and sour outside. So there's no fear of me trying to steal those. But at the bottom, they got dirty, and sometimes mold would grow there. And so my dad was not a vine dresser, okay? So he probably wouldn't have cared. But I saw it, and I saw what it did. So sometimes we had to hose it down just to clean it up. But that's what the vine dresser does. He lifts up, okay? He lifts up those vines, cleans it, because he cares for what's going to come from it. If there are little shoots that are growing that it's going to crowd the major uh, vine that's coming out, they're going to be trimmed up. This, this is not supposed to be a fear thing. This is supposed to be a fruitfulness theme, which I think is really, really cool. So in John uh, 15.4, it continues, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do some things. Is that what it says? No. It says apart from me you can do nothing. Now, you need to go back and realize in verse 1, Every branch in me, we're all in Christ already. This is a big, big deal, okay? So again, I may be speaking too much to the old understanding of how to interpret this. So I'm sorry if I'm focusing on that too much, but it's still a big deal for a lot of people. And I want to make sure that we find the hope and good news in this. Jesus is the one bearing the fruit in us. So I've got an apple tree in my backyard. In fact, I think there's five types of apples that have been put into that tree and grafted in uh, at some point. I don't understand how it works. But what do I have to do to make fruit grow on that tree? Nothing. I watch. It's a really slow process, but I'm just saying, it's a, I don't do anything. Um, it, it just starts to grow. It, what's going on is happening inside, and this is what's going on here. Christ in you is the sap, is the life that's bearing fruit, but what kind of fruit is it? Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. Uh, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown, ballow away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast, ballow them into the fire, and they are burned. Oh, okay, see there, there's the fire, there's the scary part. Uh, this is the part we're supposed to be afraid of. I don't want to be a branch thrown into the fire. But let me ask, what's the fruit? Okay, go with me on this. What is the fruit? Because if something's going to be thrown in a fire, what is the fire's purpose? We automatically think in our Western culture, oh, to, to burn away and to, to destroy. And that's not what this means. So what is the fruit? We have a sneak peek in Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. This is the grapes. This is the fruit that's supposed to come out of our lives. Which I think is very timely in this era of life for all of us in North America and around the world. And this is the idea of love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. Yeah, pruning brings increase. That's right, Lisa, from uh, out west. Um, This is a big deal. This stuff pours into one another. When you have other fruit that's coming out, that's not part of the original vine. Something snuck its way there. All right, it's not evidence of Christ in you. And we sometimes bear fruit that we have allowed to attach to ourselves that isn't the real us. That is what's pruned and burned. So what's burned? Here we go. For no man can lay a foundation. This is from 1 Corinthians. What is burned off from the fruit? Okay. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the foundation. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will be evident. For the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire. At the fire itself will, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Okay, pause there for a minute. I think this is, this is a huge deal. What's going to get burned off? The stuff that was not produced by Christ. My little joke earlier of, you know, abiding in Christ, for apart, apart from me you can do nothing, and I said, ha apart from me you can do some things. It's those some things that you think you can do that are burned off. Say, no, that was never me. That was never my desire for you. Anything that Jesus does through you, that's the gold, the silver. So when the fire of his love burns away what should never have been there anyway, it's not a threat. It's a hope. We've got this concept in our heads that the fire is a negative thing. Terrell, I'm sure you've had a lot of campfires, right? Especially in the last couple of weeks. But there's a joy in sitting around a fire. It has benefits big time. And it, if you get too close, there's some consequences too. But it, what it does, it burns away. And what's left is very interesting. But in this concept, especially when you're looking at gold, silver, and if you ever looked at the process of how they purify gold, it burned and boiled up until all of the stuff, I forget what the word is, is it silt that's on the top? I forget what it's called. I just can't think of it right now. The what? The dross, thank you. The dross comes to the top and it's scooped up and what's left eventually is the purest of the gold or the whatever's being purified. And that's what you're after, the real stuff. You want to remove the impurities, you know? Um, and that happens in cooking. Or if let's, I, love my, I like my chives. So, but once in a while when I cut chives, there's all these extra, there's grass that gets in there or, or there's dried chives that are like so dry and yellow and gross. I, I pull them out because I don't want to eat them. So I purify the batch of chives. I know, it works, doesn't it? Okay. I knew I'd fit chives in here someday. So anyway, but this whole idea of the vine dresser lifts up is an act of love. And that's what your Heavenly Father does to you, lifts you up, especially when you get dirt on you, especially when you got stuff on you that isn't supposed to be there, behaviors that are... They, they don't reflect the love of God. And the loving daddy just lifts you. Oh, child, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wash you off. You don't even know you need this cleaning. And it's not a hurtful thing. It's for your benefit. It's like your kid's getting a cut. 
you know, uh, or uh, something happens, I'm sure, while you're camping, Terrell, um, the kids might have gotten hurt at any point, and you have to suddenly clean the wound with water. You get the dirt out of it so it can heal. That's what this is like. Lifts up, purifies, cleans. Are you getting the picture? It's a beautiful picture. Dross, thank you, Lisa, yes. All right, this is from, um, oops, I need my clicker back, whatever it was. John 15 from the Passion Translation. This is, this is really good. Again, this is another translation. The other one was the New American Standard Bible, which was the more traditional. Now hear it like this. I am the true sprouting vine, and the farmer who tends the vine is my father. He cares for the branches connected to me by lifting and propping up the fruitless branches, which I'll talk about in a sec, and pruning or cleansing every fruitful branch to yield a greater harvest. And I love the, the, the uh, subnotes. Oh, can I have the clicker? There we go. So here's the, what that, uh, if you go back to uh, the, the um, propping up and lifting up, here's what it means. The Greek phrase can also be translated, he takes up to himself every fruitless branch. He doesn't remove these branches, but he takes them to himself as the wise and loving farmer. He lifts them up off the ground to enhance their growth. In the context, Christ's endless love for his disciples on the last night of his life on earth seems to emphasize God's love even for those who fail and disappoint him. Peter's denial didn't bring rejection from Jesus. That's a big, big deal. John 15, verse 3. The words I have spoken over you, I have and have already cleansed you. This word already is missed by those that are misreading this text. We are already clean. God has cleansed us, especially on the inside. It's the outside that sometimes gets dirt on them. You must remain in life union with me. And when it says you must remain, this is, this, remember my definition of abiding? The constant awareness. That's how. Objectively, you can't be separated. But subjectively in your mind, you can. You can forget that you're in union with Jesus. It's saying here, you must remain. Don't forget, being constant awareness. Uh, remain in life union with me, for I remain in life union with you. Ah, oh, did you just catch that? You must remain. I want you to be conscious and intentional about realizing you're one with Christ. And then for, for I remain in life union with you. Even if you forget, I won't, Jesus says. You, you, you can't ditch him. <laughs> like, sorry, Jesus is stuck with you. Permanently, forever. Nothing he can do. There are a couple stories that, uh, I'm not going to tell the whole stories because it's, it's too long, but um, the lost sheep is a, a theme that's really important because the, the parable talks about um, one sheep getting lost, leaving the 99 and going finding that one. So the point here is that sheep, while it is lost, still has an owner, which is the resounding theme in the next three stories. That sheep still is owned by the shepherd. And the shepherd cares for that sheep just as much. So even if that one, so let's call him sheep number 85 out of 100, goes off and is lost. Same thing would happen if number 66 took off. 
Then the other one would be back in and the shepherd would go find number 66 and so on. It doesn't matter. They're all loved and owned. And that's a big deal. Then you have the story of the lost coin. This one's even more beautiful because the woman loses her coin. She searches her house, can't find it. Then she finds it, celebrates. Oh my goodness, come have a party with me. It must have been a valuable coin. And she invites her family and friends to, hey, come celebrate with me. Let's have a party. I found my coin and what was lost is now found. Again, while the coin was lost, it still had an owner. And it still retained its value. Those that are lost have forgotten their identity or don't know their identity. But they're still part of the family. I remember Jesus saying somewhere that there are sheep not in this fold that are mine. You know, we're all God's children. Uh, uh, Paul talked about that on Mars Hill. When he's talking about telling about the, uh, the different altars and so on. But he said, look, we are all God's children. And then he, that's quoting Zeus. Can you believe it? He's bringing mythology into, like, it's in the Bible. Oh, some people would be pretty offended by that, but I'm sorry, that was Paul. You know, we are all God's children. We are not to see each other as separated. Oh, they're of that flock. <laughs> you know, that means we're, we're different, we're better. And the church has horribly done that. We've made our local churches far more important than other churches. We say, well, we're more right than them. And almost every church has had that disease. I, I can't really think of any church that has not had that disease. Sometimes good medicine uh, puts it away for a while, grace, <laughs> and we realize, hey, we're all one. The judging drops. This is about becoming loving people, not judging people. The prodigal son, one of my favorites. This is a big story because the prodigal son takes off, comes back, you know the story, and then the father is all happy, throws a party, jealous older son gets mad, and then we, again, this is called the prodigal son story, but is it really? Who called it the prodigal son story? Let me give you a hint. Bible translators. That's not in the scripture. It's not in the original languages. If you want to give it a title, it should be called the loving father. All right? Or the prodigal father. Prodigal father? What do you mean? Well, what does the word prodigal actually mean? It means spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully, extravagant. Prodigal habits die hard. Having, again, the word prodigal, having or giving something on a lavish scale, the dessert was crunchy with brown sugar and prodigal with whipped cream. Are you getting the picture? This is prodigal, lavish. So they call the prodigal son the lavish one who spent without any consideration and being irresponsible with the spending. But who gave him the money? Lavishly, irresponsibly. Because anybody that hears the story is, who, what dad would do that? He said, son, I ain't dead yet. You don't get nothing until I'm done. Sorry, that's how the will works. You know? <laughs> but he prodigally gave the son a ton of money in the story. Are you getting the picture of the lavishness and of the prodigal? I think it's the prodigal father. Maybe, just maybe, the son was far more like his father than we have ever given him credit for. The prodigal son, we sometimes call those who misbehave and don't follow God anymore as the prodigal son. Stop saying that. 
They're not the prodigal son. We got just as awful folks stuck in church doing religion, and they think they're all holy and self-righteous. And the proof is in the pudding, in the story. Because when the other son, when the prodigal son comes home, the snobby son won't have a thing to do with, and in fact, he tells his dad, this son of yours, thereby judging, see, this is, this is where we get the story of us versus them. It's, it happens right in families. It's not supposed to happen. And yet, the father does what? The father ends the story being out in the outer field, not in the party, in the outer darkness with the other son. And that's how it ends. I don't want to overread it, but my goodness, I think it's incredible. Here's a, a thought from the book Beyond an Angry God. It's no wonder the older brother of the prodigal son storms out of the house, irked and sulky. We can talk about how self-righteous he was all we want, and technically we wouldn't be wrong about it, but let's be honest. Anybody with the slightest sense of fairness would have felt the same way. Some things just aren't fair. And that's the point. Fairness suffocates to death the lack of oxygen in the grace-saturated environment of unconditional love. Fair? The father might have asked, are you nuts? This is my son, and he's come home. Beautiful picture. 2 Corinthians 5.19 is a sneak peek into why. I love it. In other words, God was using Christ to restore his relationship, if the word is reconciliation, with humanity. He didn't hold people's faults against them, and he has given us this message of restored relationships to tell others. This is the gospel. Right here. This is what we proclaim. Yes, we proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is the outcome. Restored relationships because they couldn't be restored properly. Jesus had to do this in order to make it possible that it can be a two-way street. The word enemy is interesting. It's, it's one-sided. I can, I can think Terrell is my enemy. And yet, he's thinking, what are you talking about? Well, I, I think you're mad at me for this and that. What are you talking about? You're, I never said that at all. And suddenly we get into an argument, and I can sit here thinking he's my enemy one way, but he's not my, he's not, he doesn't see it that way at all. He's being pure grace. And then when I see it, I realize, oh my goodness, I was wrong. And suddenly, relationship, friendship is restored. That's what Jesus has done, because mankind was blind and dark in their mind to seeing who God was. They thought God was mad at them. And Jesus is saying, look, you've got it all wrong. Jesus came to correct the picture of how humanity saw his father and did a beautiful job of it. And then he's given us this message, go and declare this reconciliation, this restorative message. God was using Christ to restore relationships. He, this is the best lines here. He didn't hold people's faults against them. And we do that with one another all the time. Oh, they're just like that. Oh, they believe in this political thing. Oh, this is how they view this vaccine thing. And we just create the divisions. Stop the divisions. Don't hold faults. 
take the higher road and be the presence of grace in those dumb arguments that divide us. Stop it. This is what we're supposed to be talking about. And guess what's going to happen? I guarantee it. Fruit will come out of that. God's fruit of love, joy, peace, patience. I'm going to encourage you guys all to go read 1 Corinthians 13. Read through love is patient, love is kind. Over and over and over until you get it and realize this is what's supposed to be looked, what, what I'm supposed to look like. This is what Jesus looks like to me. And he wants to live out of me. Christ is in you and he wants out. We've been saying that here for years. It's a powerful, powerful image. Grace is the celebration of life. Relentlessly hounding all the non-celebrants in the world. <laughs> I love that. It is a floating cosmic bash shouting its way through the streets of the universe, flinging the sweetness of its cessations to every window, pounding at every door in hilarity. It's almost sound like a, a Disney movie. Beyond all liking and happening until the prodigals come out at last and dance and the elder brothers finally take their fingers out of their ear. <laughs> Grace is the celebration of life, relentlessly hounding all the non-celebrants in the world. I love that. Lastly, this is from Brendan Manning, and this is powerful. We're going to end with this. My message, unchanged for more than 50 years, is this. God loves you unconditionally, as you are, not as you should be. Because nobody is as they should be. Further, he writes, My life is a witness to the grace that amazes as it offends. A grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at ten till five. <laughs> a grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal reeking of sin and wraps him up and decides to throw a party. No ifs, ands, or buts. A grace that raises bloodshot eyes to a dying thief's request, please remember me, and assures him, you bet. A grace that is the pleasure of the Father, fleshed out in the carpenter Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who left his Father's side, not for heaven's sake, but for our sakes, yours and mine. His grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without asking anything of us. It's not cheap. It's free. And as much, sorry, it's free and as such will always be a banana peel for the orthodox foot <laughs> and a fairy tale for the grown-up sensibility. Grace is sufficient, even though we huff and puff with all of our might to try to find something or someone it cannot cover. <laughs> Grace is enough. He is enough. Jesus is enough. Don't give up. Love wins. Hope wins. 
Focus on what matters. I choose grace. Grace wins. When you're facing a woe is me, going to the garden to eat worms, little hissy fit, please remember the grace that lives in you. Let's find a way through this difficult world mess that everyone's in. And it's not just a pandemic. There are many other factors going on in the world. Some people will say, well, we need to pray for Afghanistan. No, we need to pray for Israel. No, we need to pray for India. No, and you can you pick your place. But when we get to have in-person meetings, we're going to have maximum, I think 60 people, I think is what it's going to be, something like that. But there are going to be 60 different opinions of where we should pray. And guess what that means? Christ in you, as you, with you, in union with you, gives you your unique place to focus and put attention on. We don't have to all do it together because we're all uniquely made with different gifts and passions. Let Jesus live his life through you. This is how you're going to break through. I'm done with it. I've had a friendly chat with a good buddy. We, we talked about I'm done with this. <laughs> but we're not. It's just a phrase that expresses frustration. That's all. And when we know that, we go, okay, you got, we got freedom to say that. But we are all walking through this one way or another. Some are having an easier time. Some are having a harder time. Let's be gracious to one another. Let's be kind. Let kindness be the first smell that comes from you. When you walk by a person, <laughs> some people, it's awful. Other people, whoo, that's a strong scent. But you always know a kind person. Usually comes out of the eyes. And then there's the tone. And often body language as well. I don't get it right all the time. I definitely do not get it right all the time. Uh, anybody that knows me knows that's true. <laughs> but that's okay. I will walk in grace. I will enjoy the fruits of grape. Celebrate wine. Celebrate friendships in the best way that we can. Getting together is one way to do it. Can't always do that. But let grace win. Don't be afraid. Do not let fear run your thoughts or your life. Hope you'll take that to heart. All right.